At that time, Jesus went on the Sabbath to the grain fields, and his disciples became hungry and began to pick the heads of grain and eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Behold, your disciples do what is not lawful to do on a Sabbath. But he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he became hungry, he and his companions? How he entered the house of God and they ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful to him to eat, nor for those with him, but for the priest alone. Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath the priest in the temple break the Sabbath and are innocent? But I say to you that something greater than the temple is here. But if you had known what this means, I desire compassion and not a sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Let us pray. Almighty God, we praise your name. We bless and adore you, for you alone are God, and there is none other. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you are the divine lawgiver. There is no disharmony in the Trinity or in the purposes of God revealed in Scripture. And so this morning as we look at the teaching of our Savior on the Sabbath, we pray that your Spirit will illumine our understanding and help us to grasp what it is that our Savior does for us here. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. My first pastorate was uh, in the Mississippi Delta, the cotton land of the South. And while we lived there, a little bit north of us, the State Parks Commission uh, began to build what was called a living plantation. And this was one of the first of these things. They constructed a plantation as it would have been built in the 19th century and uh, brought in all the various types of, of internal operations and cotton and, and all of these things. But it wasn't really a cotton plantation. Uh, it was not a producing farm, so to speak. It was a museum. And the whole purpose of the living plantation was for people to be able to go there and see what plantation life was like in the 19th century. Well, as I said when we opened on Monday night, uh, this concept is something what the Pharisees did with the Lord's Sabbath. By the time of Jesus' ministry, though they had restored the Sabbath to something of its uh, original integrity, they did so in such a way that it wasn't a day that was enjoyed by the people of God, but rather it was a living museum. Uh, it was more of a hands-off, look-at kind of thing, and uh, it became a very oppressive burden uh, for the people of God. And so one of the very first things that Jesus did uh, in his public ministry was to uh, strip away uh, from the Sabbath uh, these uh, rules of the Pharisee, these fences that they built around the Sabbath to make it a living museum. And this morning we want to look at uh, Jesus' teaching on the Sabbath. Now up to this point we have we've considered that the Sabbath is a creation ordinance. Because of that it is a moral, perpetual law um, obligating all people and particularly a, a blessed law given to the church for her well-being. 
that it is structured in the fourth commandment so that uh, we can free our day much in the same way that the English marketplace freed up the people to do their transactions and that there are glorious blessings attached to uh, the correct observance of the Sabbath as we saw in Isaiah 58, 13, 14. Now for many people, establish the fact that the Sabbath in the fourth commandment is a moral law uh, that really should be the end of the discussion. Is it still binding on us? But there are these difficulties when we come into the New Testament. And the difficulties are bound up in the teaching of Christ with respect to uh, the Sabbath and in the teaching of Paul and the epistles, but particularly Paul uh, with respect to uh, the Sabbath. So in order uh, more fully to establish us in the biblical doctrine. We look this morning then at the teaching of Christ on the Sabbath and we do so aware of the fact that he is uh, the divine lawgiver as we'll see in a moment and I have an idea for a t-shirt, John. It really has great market value too. Um, we all know how popular the WWJD things are in the quote Christian bookstores. What would Jesus do? jewelry and rings and everything else. Well, I have designed a t-shirt and I just want a little percentage when you market this. But WWJD on the front and put on the back the Ten Commandments. Isn't that good, huh? If you want to know what Jesus would do, read the law. It's the portrait of the Savior. And that's what we see here as we look at uh, uh, Christ the Lord of the Sabbath. And we see that Jesus never repeals nor abrogates uh, the fourth commandment. Now we'll look at this first hour, these first eight verses of Matthew chapter 12, and then in the second hour we'll look at verses 9 through 14. Here in chapter 12, we first see the Jews' accusation. It is on the Sabbath and Jesus and his disciples are uh, walking across a grain field. And as they do so, the uh, disciples uh, just pick some heads of grain, they rub them in their hands, and they pop them into their mouth. Now, that was no violation. Deuteronomy 23 allows the people of God, as they would pass through somebody's field, to pick a little bit for themselves to eat. But by this time, the Jewish opposition had sufficiently grown against Christ that uh, he was constantly being spied on. And here he is out in the middle of this field with his disciples, and yet there are Pharisees there uh, looking for any opportunity to discredit Christ or his disciples or to bring accusations against him. And as soon as they spot the disciples of Jesus picking a few heads of grain and rubbing them in their fingers and eating them, they accuse the disciples of Christ of violating the Sabbath. In verse 2, when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Behold, your disciples do what is not lawful to do on a Sabbath. Now this is a serious accusation. And uh, it's on the basis of this accusation that we're told that Jesus basically uh, abrogated uh, the fourth commandment, that it really was a ceremonial law and as such, uh, would not be uh, binding then uh, on uh, the church today. 
But we need to understand the basis of this accusation because what the disciples had done is in no place forbidden by the scripture with respect to the Sabbath. You need to understand that. There's no place in the Old Testament that says it would be wrong for a person to pick uh, an apple off an apple tree and eat it as he was going for a walk across the field, maybe on his way to or the way home from uh, the synagogue service. Uh, There was no violation. The violation was not of Scripture, but it was the violation of the laws of the Jews. And this is the very first thing that we must grasp about this confrontation and this accusation. When they say, your disciples have done what is not lawful, what they're saying is they've broken the laws of the elders. Now, the the Pharisees and scribes had a, a commendable zeal for the law of God, and we don't want to take that away from them. They really did care about the law of God and its integrity. But they got carried away in their zeal. And what they did in order to keep people from ever violating the law is they constructed another series of laws beyond God's law. So you'd never come near breaking God's law. Use the analogy, if you go over to the Grand Canyon, there'll be places, although I was surprised, not as much as one would expect, but there's places uh, where there's fences put up to keep you away from the edge. And that's, that's a nice thing, when you picture you have children there, uh, the fence is put up back from the edge of the cliff so that you will never get near enough to fall over the edge of the cliff. Well, that's what uh, the Pharisees did with their laws. Uh, the cliff of violation is over here. But so that you would never harm yourself, they built the fence back here, a few feet away. And this fence was man-made laws uh, that weren't just interpretation, but became then binding on the Jewish people. And these laws were collected in the book of the Talmud. And in the Talmud, there's some 24 chapters with 39 uh, vocations, all with subdivisions of what one could and could not do on the Sabbath. So when the Pharisees say, your disciples have done what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath, They're not talking about God's standard of the Old Testament, but they're talking about the Jewish Talmudic law. This is the law the disciples violated. Now in Exodus 34 it says that you're not to break the Sabbath even in planting and harvesting season. So the Talmud then says that if you pick some grain or fruit by hand, that's harvesting, thus that's a violation of the commandment. And if you rub some grain between your fingers, that's threshing. And thus that is a violation of the fourth commandment. Now you see the oppressiveness of what they've done. With good intentions to keep people from breaking the Sabbath, they've built this burden. They've placed this human yoke on the shoulders of God's people with this long list of human rules of do and don't on the Sabbath. Now Christ comes on the scene. And he comes for the purpose of bringing in the fullness of the new covenant and establishing the law of God as an integrity and providing for his people rest. 
I think it's interesting the relationship of, of how Matthew puts these two accounts, these two different, actually they took place on different days, the two things here in Matthew 12, 1 through 14. But notice the context. In chapter 11 is that glorious declaration just before uh, uh, we come to this discussion of the Sabbath where Jesus says in verse 28, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my load is light. Now you see, the rest giver has come. The one who has himself, as we'll see tomorrow morning, been signified in uh, the seventh day Sabbath. The one the people should have been longing for and, and looking for. He's now come in the fullness of time. And as he come, he has come to establish the true rest for the people of God. Now in order for the people of God to enjoy their rest, they must also enjoy the day of rest. And thus, once Christ pronounces that uh, the rest is here in him, he then begins to uh, strip away all of the human additions to the day of rest that the Sabbath might once again be a true picture of the eternal bliss and glory that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, against this accusation, Jesus makes his great messianic declaration. And we find it in the conclusion of the discussion in verse 8. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And here he asserts his authority as the correct interpreter of all the law of God and thus of the fourth commandment. He uses what is his favorite title of self-designation, the Son of Man. It was his way of talking about himself as the Messiah. Uh, if he called himself the Christ, the Jews would admittedly have read into that all of their uh, preconceived political notions of grandeur and glory. And so he early on in his ministry applied Daniel 7, 13 and 14 to himself, which of course it was of him, that the Messiah is the Son of Man. And he uses the phrase Son of Man because it embraces not just the glorification that we find there in Daniel, but the humiliation that leads up to it. And it's really interesting here that what he's saying, that even in his state of humiliation as the Son of Man, even as he is the suffering servant of Jehovah, he has the divine right to be the uh, absolute authoritative interpreter of the law of God and of the Sabbath. And so it's as the divine interpreter that Jesus now tears down the fences that have been erected uh, by the Pharisees. But we have to note that in, in doing so, he is not in any way advocating disobedience or transgression of the law of God. Now you must understand this, because if he did that, he would have forfeited the right to be the Son of Man. He could not be God's Messiah and come and act contrary to God's law because it's prophesied of him in uh, Psalm 40 that it's written in the book that I come to do thy will, O God. And he had to fulfill all the law of God in order to accomplish a perfect righteousness for us. 
And if Jesus himself had broken the fourth commandment, he could not save you from your Sabbath breaking or any other sin. And that's the first part of the specious reasoning with respect to what he's doing here that we need to strip away. You follow me? Now there's a hint uh, in understanding what he's doing in the phrase when he says in verse 6, but I say to you. Does that bring a certain passage of Scripture to mind earlier in the Gospel of Matthew? Go back to Matthew chapter 5 where Jesus clearly establishes his relationship to the law of God. In verses 17 and following, Do not think that I came to abolish the law of the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and so teaches others, shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, here Jesus establishes his relationship to the law. And he comes in no way to tear down the law but to affirm the law, to assert the law in all of its beauty and glory and splendor. And it's in that context that we then read the first but I say to you. Verse 21, You've heard that the ancients were told you shall not commit murder and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. Now it seems here that he's simply quoting uh, the sixth commandment. But that's not what he's quoting at all. He's referring here to the Jewish law that says it's only physical murder that is um, the violation of the sixth commandment. And Christ says, but I say to you. Then he goes on to show that it's heart murder also that violates the commandment. Everyone who is angry with his brother should be guilty before the court. Whoever shall say to his brother Raka should be guilty before the Supreme Court, and whoever shall say, you fool, should be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Now you see what he's done. He has removed the Jewish false interpretation of the law and simply restored the law to its primitive integrity. The law was given by God in the Old Covenant to deal with the heart and not just with external actions. But the Jews had so construed it that Saul of Tarsus could, or, or Paul could refer to himself when he was Saul of Tarsus, the flaming Pharisee, that with respect to the righteousness of the law, I was blameless. Now, what did he mean by that? Well, Paul was saying that externally, I did not violate the Ten Commandments. And he thought because externally, he did not violate the Ten Commandments. He hadn't committed the act of theft, murder, adultery, or whatever, that he was perfectly righteous before the law of God. It's only when he understood the law said that you shall not covet. The law deals with the heart that he was exposed in his sin and brought under conviction. And the law then led him uh, to seek true righteousness in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Christ here in Matthew 12 is doing what he does there in Matthew 5. 
he is stripping away the Jewish false interpretation of the fourth commandment in order to bring the commandment back to its beauty and splendor. Now, just stop for a moment and think how often Jesus does this. Well, I'm having all kinds of problems. Um, Jesus taught once on murder. Jesus taught three times on marriage. Have I lost myself here? I'm dropping it? It's okay? Okay. He taught three times on marriage. Do you know how many times Jesus taught on the Sabbath? Six times recorded ten places in the New Testament. Six different occasions. And two of those occasions recorded in all three of the synoptic Gospels. So you have ten accounts in the Gospels of Jesus' teaching with respect to the fourth commandment. Now, if the fourth commandment was destined for the dustbin of ceremonial law, would the Savior have invested that much time? Are the gospel writers who had to be very selective in what they placed in their gospel accounts devoted so much attention to the fourth commandment? And of course, what does this say to those people that says that the New Testament never talks about the fourth commandment? Never repeats the fourth commandment? Well, what's Jesus doing? He's interpreting the fourth commandment for us today. We'll see then what he does in his messianic defense of his disciples, which then establishes um, the principle that we'll look at here in concluding this first section. Jesus brings three arguments now to bear to show that his disciples, as he will conclude, are innocent of Sabbath breaking. It's a very interesting phrase, you see. He doesn't, uh, he doesn't say the Sabbath is no longer important, does he? He simply says they're innocent of Sabbath breaking. And he says so for these three arguments. The first he takes from 1 Samuel, chapter 21, verses 1 through 6. And here is uh, the story of David when he uh, uh, flees for his life because Saul has sent people to uh, murder him in his bed and he quickly gets a few of his followers. He takes off. He has no provisions. So you remember the story. He stops there at the uh, uh, tabernacle and he asks the priest, do you have anything here to eat? And the priest says, well, all I have is uh, the old showbread. They had just replaced the showbread. That was the loaves that were put out on the table of presence before the Lord to symbolize the fellowship between God and his people in the covenant. And on every Sabbath, the showbread was replaced with fresh loaves. And uh, the old then uh, was to be eaten by the priest. Well, it must have just been replaced because he said, yeah, all I have is the old showbread. And David says, well, give it to me. And he says, well, have you and the men with you kept yourselves uh, ceremonially clean? And David said that yes. And so he gave him the bread. And David took that bread and he and his followers uh, ate it to strengthen themselves for their journey. Now, according to the ceremonial law, it was not lawful for David, even though he was the Lord's anointed, to eat that bread. 
That bread was only to be eaten uh, by uh, the priest. And so Christ uses this as the argument, and he argues from the lesser to the greater. Now there are a number of parallels that are here. We have both events occurring on the Sabbath. David had to flee for his life on the Sabbath. Uh, he was the Lord's anointed, going about the Lord's business. His, a few of his followers were with him. Jesus and his followers were doing the business of the Lord as the Lord's anointing on the Sabbath. Second, uh, the followers of Christ uh, were doing uh, the work of Christ as the followers of David were doing the work of the Lord's anointed. And third, then, um, neither were perishing from hunger. It's interesting that it wasn't that David and his men were at the point of being famished and destitute. They simply wanted to be strengthened for the journey that was ahead of them. And, and the same was true of the disciples. They could have waited probably till they got home. All they did was have a little snack in the field as, as they walked through it. And thus you see the parallels that are here. Now, the argument is that if it was permissible under God for the Lord's anointed and his followers to eat the showbread, to break a ceremonial law in order to accomplish the purposes of the Lord's anointed, then how much more so might the true anointed one of the Lord with his followers break a man-made law in order to accomplish the purposes of the Lord's anointed? Do you see the progression of the argument? Is that clear? Okay. That's the first argument. The second argument, Jesus goes to the law as he then uh, says to them in uh, verse 5, Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple break the Sabbath and are innocent? And here, of course, he's simply reminding them that the law had detailed work that the priests and Levites had to do on the Sabbath. Uh, take, for example, uh, Numbers 28, 9 and 10. And in the first part of Numbers 28, it talks about the, uh, the daily burnt offering that's offered in morning and evening. One lamb in the morning, one lamb in the evening. But here we read in verse 9 that on the Sabbath day, two male lambs, one year old without defect and two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil as a grain offering and its libation. This is the burnt offering of every Sabbath in addition to the continual burnt offering and its libation. So in fact, the priest work increased on the Sabbath. You see that? And so Jesus simply says, let's go back to the law itself. The God who gave us the fourth commandment gave these particular uh, ceremonial things that were to be performed, these acts of piety that were necessary for the worship and the spiritual maintenance of the people of God. And thus the priests profaned uh, the Sabbath, so to speak. They did things that an ordinary person could not do, but they were innocent. And again, he argues from the lesser to greater that uh, the one who is greater than the temple is now present. And he uh, here reminds them and us that uh, he has fulfilled, is in the process of fulfilling, all that the temple and all that its sacrifices represented. And thus surely uh, that what he and his disciples did 
with respect to um, the disciples eating the little bit of food in the field uh, was uh, not at all wrong uh, as seen from the fact that uh, the priest had to do those things that promoted the acts of piety on the Sabbath. And then Jesus pulls it all together in his third argument, his third quotation from Hosea 6.6 6, here in verse 7. But if you had known what this means, I desire compassion and not a sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. And here he goes to the heart of the matter. That God is not looking for heartless um, obedience, but for heartfelt, loving worship in what is done on the Sabbath toward God and toward one's neighbor. And in saying this, he's condemning them. Were the Pharisees keeping the Sabbath? Out there following Jesus around, trying to find out what he was doing wrong? Were they seeking to worship God? Were they fulfilling uh, the heart of the law, compassion, heartfelt worship in what they were doing? No. And thus when Christ says that if you understood this, you would not have condemned the innocent, he is by implication saying you're the ones that are guilty. For condemning the innocent, the, the followers of the anointed one who are seeking to uh, serve him and do his work. And so the disciples were innocent. Now again, I remind you, he's not saying that, that uh, it was okay for them to break the Sabbath, was he? That's not what the words mean. He says they're innocent of violating the Sabbath. There's a difference. You understand that difference of being innocent of breaking the law or being excused from breaking the law. Let's say you were, you've got an emergency. The pastor's got to get to the hospital and, and you're driving 80 miles an hour down the freeway in L.A. if traffic allowed such a thing and, and uh, you got pulled over and you explained to the police officer what you and he said, that's okay, go on. Now, he didn't say you were innocent. You broke the law, but he's allowing you to break the law. But if you're driving, whatever it is, 65 miles an hour on the freeway, and um, he pulls you over, and he says, uh, were you speeding? You said, no, I was going 65 miles an hour. And he says, okay, you're innocent. You didn't break the law. And this is the language that Jesus uses here. It's not that he's excusing a violation of the fourth commandment. He says they're innocent. But all they have broken was the Pharisees' laws, and they had done so in order to accomplish the purposes of God with respect to the Sabbath. Which brings us then to the Sabbath principle that Christ is establishing here. And it's the principle that our standards say that we may do those works of necessity. Those works that of necessity and piety that promote the purposes of the Sabbath. That we are to do those works of necessity and piety that promote the purposes of the Sabbath. And we've already seen the purpose of the Sabbath. It's to cease from our regular work as God ceased from the work of creation. It is to delight in and contemplate the works of God and to enjoy and anticipate the eternal rest that desires in Christ. And so what we're taught here is as the disciples followed the Messiah in doing Sabbath work, it was fine for them to uh, refresh themselves, that those deeds 
that equip us to keep the Sabbath, that help us fulfill its purposes, are the deeds that are then not Sabbath-breaking, but part of Sabbath-keeping. In the broader culture, we think of deeds of necessity, such as the work of policemen. Uh, We know from the Noahic Covenant that because we live in a sinful world that God has established law in order to bring some preservative to society. Uh, Not his law at this point, but human law, human government. And thus, um, for for society to be safe um, and to have any kind of well-being, and we know that, uh, that God through Jeremiah taught the exiles Uh, that they were to uh, seek the well-being of the place where they found themselves to pray for its peace and prosperity that they might have um, peace and prosperity to develop as the church. And thus God has uh, given government and law um, to keep society itself stable, but that's particularly for the sake of the church and for the development of the gospel and the spread of the kingdom. And thus... Uh, we have to have police officers and if they were to take Sunday off, uh, the bad people would quickly figure that one out and uh, we would have total anarchy. Or take the matter of electricity. Uh, You probably have come across the uh, arguments that well, if we're really going to keep the Sabbath, we cannot use electricity uh, on the Lord's Day. And uh, that's taken back to uh, the Old Testament uh, prohibitions about kindling fires. Well, there's a lot of difference between kindling a fire and turning an electric switch. But actually in chapter 4 in the book, I try to deal with that a little bit. And you can buy the book and read that chapter. That's one you're not getting in, the, <laughs> in these lectures. But uh, in our culture, electricity is a necessity for well-being of people and for the church to do its thing. Uh, heating, electricity, lighting, amplification. You just think of all the aspects of electricity that are necessary for the keeping of the Sabbath. And you see this principle at work applied in a, in a modern technological way. You follow this one. That electricity is necessary that we are equipped. Cooking food is necessary. It was not prohibited in the Sabbath of the Old Covenant. Cooking to eat is a necessity if you're going to keep the Sabbath well and do those things that, uh, that need to be done. So this is what's meant by deeds of necessity, those things that promote the purposes of the Sabbath. And we can bring it in closer to the church itself. There are many deeds of necessity and necessary piety that must be done if the church is to do uh, its Sabbath work. Somebody has to come in early and open up turn on the heating or the air conditioning. There's a certain amount of straightening up that needs to be done uh, between services. There are all types of diaconal chores that will have to be done so that the people of God can keep the Sabbath in a corporate manner. Uh, So that uh, not just the pastor, but particularly the the elders and the deacons will do many things that are necessary work in order for the church to keep the Sabbath. There will be those of you that teach Sunday school. And in doing so, you're having to work. It'd it'd be a lot more fun for most of you to be in somebody else's class soaking it up and learning rather than yourselves having to expend yourselves in teaching. 
and yet you recognize this is God's calling for you, and, and you do that as the priest had to labor in the temple uh, with the extra uh, sacrifices and ceremonies of, of the Sabbath. And so you serve the Lord in this day so that the whole church together can keep the Sabbath. If we did not do these things, we could not have corporate worship, we couldn't have our regular uh, Sabbath school programs and all these other types of activities. And so both the, the physical and mechanical things that have to be done in the church for Christian ministry, as well as those, uh, those uh, deeds of piety, the teaching, the preaching, the, the counseling, uh, discipleship, um, all the things that go into the church's enjoyment of the Lord's Day entail work uh, for people within the body of Christ. And uh, such work is not Sabbath-breaking. So the principle is that we are to do those things of necessity and piety that are necessary to promote the purposes of the day. You got that principle? Because you turned into a question then. Most of us don't like gray areas. You know, I, I wish everything were black and white. I mean, ever since college, I've constantly stayed in turmoil because of gray. Um, <laughs> But God deliberately uh, left a good bit in the gray that we would not become complacent, that we'll keep seeking Him and searching the Scriptures and, and uh, growing. And it's the gray area that gives all of us trouble in trying to apply any of God's laws. Well, here is a question that you can ask of anything in the gray area you're trying to decide about. Does it promote the purposes of the day? It's, it's a tremendous question because it really starts cutting through. I mean, it cuts through some of the questions that we have um, uh, talked about uh, in, um, as you've come to me with questions in the few days that, that we've been here together. Um, one young man asked about uh, swimming in the pool and this was the question that uh, I brought to, to help him think about this. Well, the question is, does that act promote the purposes of the Lord's Day. And you can quickly contrast that with going for a walk. You can go for a walk and either have a conversation with other people about things of the Lord or you can meditate and pray or review scripture or catechism. But uh, can you do that swimming laps? Well, that's a question each of you has to answer for himself, you see. If this thing promotes the purposes of the Sabbath, then... That becomes your criteria in, in, in these gray areas as you try to apply this. And you can take it to any number, any one of these things. It will not fail you. That if your heart's desire is to keep the Sabbath and to do the purposes of God on the Sabbath, then you ask this question. Does it promote the purposes of the day? If it does, it is not Sabbath-breaking. It is Sabbath-keeping as we see here in Matthew chapter 12. You know, there is a, um, a perverse legalism with respect to the Sabbath. Again, we're all rightly concerned about not being coming across as legalistic or self-righteous, but the, the perverse legalism, it's, it's, the, it's the question that the teenagers used to ask. I think maybe, at least in the Reformed churches, they're better... Uh, trained today, but it used to always ask the question, how far can I go? 
Yeah? Some of us have asked that question. We were young. How far can I go and not sin? That's a perverse legalism, you see. It's a total wrong approach to, to piety and to righteousness. And unfortunately, that's how many of us look at the Lord's Day. What can I do? What can I get away with? I have a friend. I, I, I actually changed the sex in the book to protect the guilty. Um, a friend had a daughter, has a daughter, but when she was younger, uh, there was a certain outfit that she wanted to wear to school. And her mother was quite adamant, you may not wear that to school. And after a good bit of arguing, that, that finally got across, you may not wear that to school. Okay. So what did she do? She packed it in her gym bag and carried it to school and wore it at school. She didn't wear it to school. She kept the letter of the law. That's a perverse legalism. You see that? It's a way of disobeying legally. And that's often the mindset that we have. Our mindset is not to enjoy the Lord's Day and to promote its purposes. Our mindset is what can we get away with? What kind of doors can we keep open for ourselves? This question will negate that thinking. If you have a heart's desire to please God, to do the purpose of the Lord's Day, and you ask this question, does this thing, does this act that I want to do promote the purposes of the Lord's Day? Now in the second hour, we'll, we'll look at a second principle that comes out of the other confrontation that Matthew gives us here. Let us pray. Our God in heaven, we praise your name as you have uh, taught us, Lord, again from your word, the principles of our Savior as he approaches the fourth commandment, indeed not abrogating it, but establishing it in its integrity and beauty. Help us, Lord, to love this day and to ask this question about the things that we would do. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.